You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you are interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading comes from 1 Timothy 1, 1 1-5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah, go ahead and take your seats. You have a very soothing voice. <laughs> good to have you here. If I haven't met you, my name is Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. And uh, yeah, I've got an exciting announcement before we dig in. We're very excited to begin First Timothy, but got a, uh, an announcement I've been very excited to make for a while. I've been sitting on. Um, if you know, we, we are about a 10-month-old church plant now. Very excited by that. What God has done in these last 10 months is outrageous and blown away. And, um, you know, we followed what we felt like was a, a call of God that our elders discerned in Vancouver was, in fact, the way the Lord was leaving, leading. And his spirit has just showed up as we've landed here. We moved here with this vision of seeing a church planted in Kelowna that would become a church planting church throughout the valley, kind of that big, outrageously sized vision that I've become, and we as a church have become possessed with, is that every single person in the Okanagan would be within reach of a biblically faithful, gospel-proclaiming, vibrant church. And that's not the case right now. There's many communities, not only that maybe have a, a dying church that's really in need of some um, refreshing, but there's communities with no churches anymore, and that's troubling. We should not be okay with that. I've been praying um, towards this for years, praying for planters for this valley. Luke 10, 2, every Tuesday morning I've prayed for years that says, Jesus told us, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send laborers in because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. I'm very encouraged. Praying for planters for years, and about six months ago I met one. Um, his name is Dana. He's been pastoring a church in Saskatchewan for six years and um, actually went to the same high school as me. And somehow, not only did we not end up in a fist fight, I didn't even know the guy, and he graduated very close to me. So um, he, he, him and his wife, Susie, um, moved back from Saskatchewan, kind of possessed by this vision of planting a church in Summerland, which is my hometown. And they've been attending here for six months. We're very excited to announce that he's coming on staff here as a church planting apprentice with the goal of we're going to take a year just to do an apprenticeship, but we want to see churches planted throughout the valley, and and this is a man who shares the same vision, theology as us, and so we're excited. I'll introduce him in coming weeks. Unfortunately, he's away this week. I just didn't want him to show up here next Sunday when he officially starts, and you'd be like, who is this guy? Um, Yeah, very encouraged by that. Hopefully you're encouraged by that. The Spirit's moving. By God's grace, we'll see many churches planted out of this church in conjunction, partnership with other churches. I want to encourage you to keep praying to that end. Um, Our church in Vancouver, where we'd come from, they always said it's not a matter of if we'll plant churches. It's where and when and with whom. And I want to carry that vision forward into the Okanagan here. By God's grace, Praxis, we can be a part of seeing many churches many other churches planted. Now, with that said, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for a building. We are coming up on the edges of this one, um, especially in our kids' care. So this summer, we're going to have the bouncy castles back outside and some things to create some space here. But we seriously need, Lord, to provide a building for us um, as we continue to grow into fall. Um, So keep, please, pressing into that. More importantly, though, than a building, more importantly than any of this is that... um, we would, as this church plant is established, have a firm foundation, a foundation on which we could build, go into the future so that we could be a church that hopefully is around for my grandbabies, that plants churches long after I'm around. And if this is going to be the case, we need a good foundation. 
And so this is why we're diving into 1 Timothy this summer. 1 Timothy is, is a great book. It's a book written by Paul to Timothy to provide instruction to a young church. Instruction, I'm sorry, the, the instruction contained in this book uh, has great wisdom, not only for then, but also for today. It teaches on a number of different things. Leadership in the church, how that should function, how the church should function as the family of God, who should lead the church, how should the church be governed, what doctrines the church should teach, how the church should interact with the law. It's got a lot of great content in it. And my hope is, in going into this, is that this lays a foundation for us. It establishes some things for us so that we don't have to lean out of the second story window a few years from now trying to fix, fix foundational matters. And so it's, it's going to be a good study this summer. I'm looking forward to it. If you haven't already, open your Bible. You need one here at Praxis. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. If you have a phone, you can Google 1 Timothy 1 with these three letters behind, ESV, and that'll bring you to the translation that we're using um, but it would be helpful for you to follow along. While you open your Bibles, let me open us in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are good towards us. You're faithful to your promises towards us. And when you call, you provide. Nothing can stop you. No weapon fashioned against your church will prosper. You are one who rules supreme over all. And I praise you in gratitude for the great work you've done here in 10 months. We, we look forward to the future and pray that you do great things through us as a congregation, this expression of yourself here in Glenmore, Kelowna. Would you multiply us for the sake of the small communities around? Would you call more planters? Would you create unique partnerships with other churches, if it's your will, even different denominations so that we could see every single person within reach of a gospel-proclaiming church again. I pray that as we build a foundation for this young plant, that we would be built on what is straight and true, and we know that your word is the source of that instruction for us, and so I need you to empower me. Holy Spirit, breathe into life these words so that we could be built up correctly. We pray this to you, Father, in the great name of Jesus. Amen. All right. In your Bibles, 1 Timothy 1 opens, um, telling us the letter's written by Paul. And as with all of his letters, he kind of has these really unique little introductions. I'm just going to read it, and, and then you'll understand why. He opens by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's different because when we write letters, typically what we do is we, we write who it's to, dear Timothy, or to whom it may concern. We don't open with, hey, this is Josh, but this is what Paul does. Um, Paul, Paul includes a formal introduction of himself, and there's always a lot in it. And so just for a second, I want to unpack a little bit of this. If you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, um, you'll see that it starts with him saying, this is Paul, Paul. And if you don't know who Paul is, um, Paul was one of the apostles. Apostle is really just a theologically nerdy way of, of referring to like a delegate or a messenger. It kind of means one set forward with orders. This is what an apostle is. Jesus had 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. They were the ones that um, Jesus commissioned to be the leaders of the early church to provide instruction for those who came after them to rightly teach what Jesus taught them. They were the, the carrying forward of the true instruction from Jesus and um, you know, kind of authorities of sorts. But what's really interesting is that Paul wasn't one of them. So Paul calls himself an apostle, but he wasn't one of the 12 followers of Jesus. He wasn't the 12 disciples of Jesus. In fact, he, he opposed Jesus. We read in Acts 9, he actually went on to kill Christians, to be part of the persecution of those who, who followed Jesus. But at one point, he has an encounter with Jesus, and he ends up um, having a dramatic conversion. He goes on to plant many churches throughout um, the non-Jewish Greek world, and the 12 disciples accept him as one of the apostles. And so what you see is that after Jesus becomes, or pardon me, Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, at some point he becomes an apostle. And, and he says why. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ by command of God. That's why he's an apostle, because God commanded him. And, and he goes on now to say that he's writing to Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, we'll put a pin there, pause, and unpack that a little bit. He calls him his true child in the faith. Now, what we need to know is Paul met Timothy in a place called Lystra. So he's not his actual child. He's not a biological child. It doesn't seem that Paul even led Timothy to the Lord. It seems like his grandmother and mother did this. So the question is, why does he call him his child in the faith? Um, the reason I'm convinced, or I, I think, is that it's because Timothy followed Paul on his missionary journeys. And to be a son of a father in this day and age was to apprentice under your father for a trade. And Timothy has sort of been an apprentice of Paul. He's followed him around. He's learned the trade of Paul. And Paul in doing this, kind of became a mentor figure of sorts. He showed Timothy what it looked like to live as a godly man, how to live out the mission and the commands of God fully with one's life. And, and so Timothy follows Paul around on his many missionary journeys, and Paul actually ends up beginning to commission him out for specific tasks. So just as one's natural child would continue on a family genetics and character characteristics, if you will. Um, Timothy is continuing on the theology, the burden, the, the call of Paul, this, this commission to go and make Jesus known. He's, he's Paul's true child in the faith. Now, you might be wondering, this is a fair question, why are we reading someone else's mail? I mean, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Why are we reading it 2,000 years later? Well, this letter was written to Timothy in a place called Ephesus, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but it, um, it has been preserved, though it was written for Timothy, for 2,000 years because it's also for us today. Notice again in verse 1 what Paul says, that he's writing by command of God. He's an apostle, and he's writing by the command of God. Um, and this kind of ties in with a bunch of other scriptures that we see in the New Testament. The first is 2 Peter 1. It says regarding the scripture, men spoke from God as they were moved, some translations will say carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is how scripture was spoken. Men empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, and they, they wrote the scripture they, as God carried them along. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul's next letter to Timothy, we read, all of this scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the men of God, the men and women of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is something, therefore, God wrote. And that tells us a few things. But before we get into this, you, you might wonder then, you know, why does Paul address it if it's written from God? Why doesn't it say, thus saith the Lord? Something like that. The reason why is because Paul, Paul is part of it. To use an analogy, if I write a letter to you and pick up a pen in my hand and I write a letter, you might say, who wrote the letter, Josh or the pen? Well, both. Both were used. Paul is the pen in God's hand, and his characteristics come through, his heart comes through, but ultimately what the scripture tells us is it was God who is the one writing it, and since God is timeless, these words are timeless as well. They've been preserved for us today. Now, with that said, we're going to get going here in just a second, to be good students of the Bible, we also need to understand the context into which it was originally written, because it was first written to an audience. That's the audience at Ephesus. And so if we're going to be good Bible students, we need to understand a bit about the original context before we try to apply it to ours. Um, the church he's writing to um, that Timothy is serving in is the church in Ephesus. And you'll, if you're familiar with the New Testament, know there's another book called Ephesians. Paul wrote to this church. It was a major church. Um, because Ephesus was, you can see it's in modern-day Turkey there, it was a large, influential city, lots of trade, people were pretty well off. 
And, and it was full of different religions, lots of kind of multiculturalism, um, which tends to result in a bit of an acceptance towards everything. I mean, you're, you're doing business with, going to school with people who think differently than you. And so there's this diversity that happens, lots of beautiful aspects of that. Also some danger to be aware of, though. It's very applicable to us. Canada um, recently surpassed India in that we are the most ethnically and religiously diverse country in the world. That's not surprising when you look around, especially in urban centers like Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver. A lot of diversity, but with that comes a bit of mission drift. It can be easy to fall into that. As well, Ephesus had this. Okay, there, it worked. Um, it had the Temple of Artemis. This is one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Many say it was the most beautiful of all of the ancient wonders of the world. Um, very, very big temple. Uh, in Ephesus, there was a bit of a, a sense of pride around the fact that they had this wonder of the world. It, it, it was known all around, and so to be an Ephesian was to kind of be proud of the temple of Artemis. It's like, um, it became culture, part of the cultural ethos, like if you're from Hawaii, surfing is kind of part of that image and the ethos of what it means to be Hawaiian. If you're from Vancouver, it's the North Shore Mountains or the seawall. It's what the stampede is to Calgary. It's what the Oilers were to Edmonton. <laughs> Timothy here is not ministering to a Judeo-Christian context. That's the point. He's ministering into a, a, a world and a people that are very different. Their default mode is not God's word. It's something different. There's false teachings, there's false practices, there's dangerous issues and ideas infiltrating the church, and there's false teachers teaching them. And Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus in order to protect the church, in, in order to be on guard against these things. Just take a look at what he says in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he opens the letter and he states his purpose so that Timothy would guard against the things that come to threaten and change the foundation. A little further on in 1 Timothy, he actually states his purpose more explicitly. He says this. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says the church has a vital role. It's to be the home of the living God. It's to be a pillar of truth in the world. The temple of Artemis had pillars all around it. There's like a pillared structure. He says, the church is the pillar. It's not the temple of Artemis, it's the church. And so he writes to Timothy, and, and why we're studying it now is so that we can as well understand what the church is to be, how it's to be structured, what it's for, how it should function, because we have a vital role. And if we're going to fulfill this, then there's three things that I think this text is presenting for us. Three kind of ways to look at these arguments. Um, if we're to fulfill our role, then we need to be on guard because there's a danger to avoid. There are people with different doctrine teaching people. Take a look at what it says in verse 3. Again, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. People are teaching different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship, which is from God. They're failing to steward the truth. This group of teachers had infiltrated the church. They're spreading incorrect views about Jesus, the gospel, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They deviated. And he tells us how they how this had happened. It says they were preoccupied by myths, genealogies, and speculation. 
They're obsessed with speculating around Old Testament texts. It seems like some from Genesis early on. Um, the genealogies that we see early on in the Old Testament and, and from these texts, they're developing a number of strange teaching around marriage, sex, food, and so forth. Paul here, he's referring to the first century version of the guy who shows up to church with an eschatological scroll wanting to tell you which day Jesus is coming back on. The, the person who likes to build obscure theology off of weird verses, find some diet in the Old Testament and then start to practice it and then tell everyone else they should do it and judge you if you don't. That type of person. Obscure verses creating obscure theology, teaching it to others, and then like throwing shade on them if they don't do what you think you should be doing. They're making new doctrines or they're making different doctrines that, that pull people off of center when it comes to the gospel. And at the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, if you hang a right, you'll see that he actually refers to these teachers as people who have turned from correct teaching to the teaching and doctrine of demons. He calls this deviating a doctrine of demons. You see, this theme of right doctrine comes up throughout this book. He shows us there's a right doctrine, but there's a doctrine of demons as well. What we learn, doctrine's important. If you um, kind of haven't heard that theologically nerdy word, doctrine, before, what it means is it's, it refers to a set of beliefs or a, a foundation of belief, a, a way of understanding a topic, uh, a way of understanding Jesus. It can, it can actually it can refer to a lot of things. We have doctrines around creation. We have doctrines around sin, marriage, the end times, doctrines of how we're saved, who Jesus is, the attributes of God, doctrines around um, when God will, or Christ will return, lots of different doctrines in the church. Um, doctrine is simply a way of establishing a way of right thinking about God. In itself, it's good. Right thinking about God is important. It's important we think right about God. He's chosen to reveal himself. It's important that we understand it correctly. Because Paul says to understand it incorrectly is dangerous. It could be inspired by a doctrine of demons. First uh, Timothy 6, further on, I'm jumping all through the letter today, but he says if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord, the doctrine of our Lord, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. There are teachers who are teaching false doctrines. We've talked about this a lot because we just came out of Sermon on the Mount. Not every false teacher walks on stage puts his Bible down on some flat pulpit and props his iPad up against it, completely failing to open the Bible again for the rest of the sermon, which is a pretty good red flag. That's not a good place to go for biblical teaching. Not everyone does that, though. Some of them actually open the Bible, but they misapply it. There's a danger in false teaching. There's a danger for these false teachers. Jesus said this, Woe to those who relax the least in one of these commands. Second Peter says the gloom of outer darkness is reserved for them. There's danger in being a false teacher. But there's danger in following false teaching as well, because as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, not every path leads to eternal life. And when you widen the path, when you change the gate, when you deviate the course, it leads to a different destination. Paul's just echoing what we've heard Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Not all teaching is trustworthy. Not every sermon is sound. Verse 4 says, This teaching it promotes speculation rather than stewardship. Now, anyone beside that word stewardship in your Bible, is there a number... A number, mine has a one. Anyone else have that? 
None? Okay, get an ESV study Bible. If you have a good study Bible, okay, one person, yes. Um, You'll see mine has a little number one, and you can drop down into the margin, and it tells me that this word in Greek means good order. And I I went and did the research for us. The reason why this is important um, is because God is a God of order. God is glorified by order. Good order is important. Bad teaching attacks order. Our God is a God who creates order out of chaos. You remember Genesis 1. He went into chaos and created order. He created the whole world out of chaos. The enemy comes and takes the order and creates chaos. He tries to systematically undo what God has done. This is why this word is important. The church is supposed to have order. Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he he wrote a letter to a church that was using the good things of God, the spiritual gifts, but they'd become chaotic and disorderly. And he's like, all of you are talking in tongues. Prophets are interrupting one another. It's crazy and it's not honoring to God. It's meant to have order. When somebody yells out in the middle of the service, it disrupts order. It's not glorifying to God. God is a God of order. So when we have order in the church, some people think you're putting God in a box. You're actually honoring God. Just as a little aside, our God is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14 says, but of peace. The church is to have structure and order, and this is why we're taking a look at 1 Timothy, is to look at what's the foundation we should build on so that we don't end up in chaos. The enemy will come and into order bring disorder, because if he can do that, he can... He can change or prevent us from doing what we're meant to do. We'll come back to that in a little bit. There's a danger to avoid, which implies something else to us. The second point here this morning is that there is a truth to follow. If there's wrong teaching, there's right teaching. This is why Paul left Timothy there, is to rebuke and correct false teachers. And if you take a look at verse 5, there's something noteworthy here. Read it with me. He says, the aim of our charge, so the aim in correcting people is love. This love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says correcting people who are incorrect is a loving action. To, To rebuke people who are teaching false doctrine is loving. To correct those who bring Disorder and division is loving. Actually, at the very end of chapter 1, we'll get to this in a couple weeks, he names two people who've been doing this. He writes them down in a letter that's been reserved for 2,000 years. Hymenaeus and Alexander, we know. They were teaching falsely. Paul put them outside of the church and wrote down in a letter to the church, these people are teaching incorrectly. And I find this noteworthy because today we don't like to, we don't like to get namey. We don't want to name anyone. We're like, oh, we shouldn't do that. We don't speak evil against the Lord's anointed or whatever language has been used. We shouldn't name anyone. Well, Paul seems to do it. We need to see it's not unloving to correct people who are in the wrong. It's unloving to not correct them. But I know that goes against kind of the modern uh, grain we tend to think, you know, I, I know their theology is a little off, but they're a nice guy. It'd be unloving of me to correct them. You know, and then we use this language, I'm just going to love them into the kingdom. Being, being loving doesn't get someone to heaven. Feeling loved doesn't get someone to heaven. It's important that we love people. Okay, hear me wrong. Feeling love doesn't get someone to heaven. Rightly believing in God does. Rightly trusting Jesus does. Rightly walking in the way does. Rightly acting out our beliefs. Rightly believing the right thing. This is is what Paul is saying here. And and, and notice too, he says in verse 5, the loving thing is to correct someone. It's unloving to let people walk on a path to destruction. Not all roads lead to Rome. The loving thing is to go and pull people off them. You remember the reference we used from Pilgrim's Progress. He ended up on the path because someone came to him and said, the path you're on is headed to destruction. 
Notice what else verse 5 says. There's lots here. I'm going to get nerdy for a second. He says, love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love doesn't cause these things. Love proceeds from these things. Love proceeds from a good conscience and a sincere or a sound faith. Right teaching doesn't issue from being loved. Love issues from right belief. It's unloving to let people walk into things that are untrue, and it's loving to correct people who are walking into things that are untrue. It's loving to correct false beliefs and unloving not to. And Paul is going to, in this letter, provide correction on a number of issues. And fair head warning, some of these don't match up with some of the church traditions we've come from. These are going to be challenging because we, like the Ephesians, have a tendency towards mission drift and varying off. We, like the Ephesians, have sat under teaching that doesn't match up with um, the, the plumb line that is set in the scriptures for us. So it's important that we keep coming back to this and examining ourselves, because we can be sincere and sincerely wrong. And I want to give you an example of this. Um, when I moved to Vancouver 12, 13 years ago, there was a guy who bought up, I think, almost every billboard down Broadway. And so as you went from Maine towards UBC, you would see a billboard where this man had purchased um, signs that said, the end is coming, and it was like on June 14th. June 14th, Jesus is coming back. Uh, it didn't end up happening. He also bought up signs all around, like urban centers around North America, because he sincerely believed Jesus was coming back on June 14th because he, he found some numerical code in the Old Testament. And he, and he was sincerely wrong. It was a year or two ago, a guy, um, any flat earthers here? Okay, don't put your hands up. I'm going to walk you into a trap. So there's this man who built a steam-powered rocket to launch himself into the atmosphere so that he could photograph and prove that the earth was not heliocentric. And he sincerely believed this, put all of his money into a steam-powered rocket development and strapped himself to it. He was sincere, and now he's sincerely dead. <laughs> Doctor, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. And if we are to have a sincere faith, it needs to be built on sincere doctrine. Doctrine is an often misunderstood idea. Sometimes the word doctrine is treated like a dirty word in the church. Uh, doctrine simply means a set of beliefs. A, it's a right, it's a, an established way of understanding something. And doctrine is essential. It's essential because it tells a message about God and how he operates. It's essential because what we believe about God shapes the way we live. So right belief about God is, is very important because our actions matter. <clears throat> if we want to live the Christian life, <clears throat> pardon me, in the way that is meant to be lived, we, we have to understand the Christian faith in the way it's meant to be understood. I want to say that again. If we're going to live the Christian life in the way it was meant to be lived, we need to understand the Christian truths in the way that they were meant to be understood. And therefore, doctrine's important. This is why we named this church Praxis. Praxis means well, two things. Orthodoxy is right beliefs. Orthopraxis is right practice of those beliefs. Praxis, it means right beliefs lived out in a right way, and this is what we need to do. You can't live the right way if you have wrong beliefs. And so this is why Paul charges Timothy to ensure people are teaching sound doctrine, because it's essential to living faith in the right way. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, um, Paul says that a good teacher puts these truths, sound doctrines, before the congregation. It says, good teachers teach doctrine. 1 Timothy 5.17, he says that pastors are to labor in preaching, proclaiming the scripture, teaching, which is explaining what the scriptures mean. That's doctrine. There is true teaching. 
but some aren't teaching it. Some are afraid of it. Look at what verse 6 says in chapter 1. This is next week's text, but I'm preaching it so I can walk all over it if I want to. Um, Chapter 6, it says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, these sound doctrines, have wandered away into vain discussion. That's what bad doctrine is, vain discussion. If you're here and you're reading the New American Standard Bible, I love how that translation says it. It calls it fruitless discussion. And if you're reading the King James, I love this. It calls it vain jangling. How cool is that? Vain jangling. That's what bad theology is. Now, the question comes up then is, how nitpicky should we get around doctrinal issues? How down in the weeds do we get? Where do we draw lines? There's countless opinions within the church. How how close do we go with this? Well, this is a question the church has tried to answer for a long time. And it needs to keep providing answers for because we keep having new things that threaten to pull us off course. Early on in church history, in the mid-400s, I believe, um, the Apostles' Creed was created. This is where people came together in order to guard against all the variations. They said, well, this is the teaching that was taught by the Apostles. It was the belief in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended into hell. There's some division around that language, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's a belief in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which means universal church, not like the Catholic Church and the Pope's hat, that sort of thing. It means the global one church a belief in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life eternal. They came and they put this down because they said, well, this is how we guard against all the other things that have come along. Now, there's those who come and say, we should have no creed but the Bible, just the Bible. We don't need all these other things. Those are weird doctrines of man. My wife and I were part of an organization in South America, a missions organization, and they... Their doctrinal statement was this. We believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Well, that's great. So do the Jehovah's Witnesses. So do the Mormons and all the cults. So at some point, we do need to provide some clarity around some of these things, or the umbrella is so wide that everyone fits under. So we believe here at Praxis what is referred to as the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe this is our highest authority. We believe the scripture speaks with clarity and we can understand what's necessary to understand about God through what the scriptures teach. With that said, though, we can learn a lot around what the church has historically held by going back and and reading things, creeds, councils that have been formed. A good example of this is um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. About 120 years ago, um, this This new organization flared up, and they brought with them a a, a heresy, which was referred to as Arianism, not like German Arianism, like an ancient heresy that the church gathered together and actually determined was heterodox, meaning it wasn't orthodox. It was wrong teaching. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't go back. And you can go, oh, we don't need to figure out how to discuss things with Jehovah's Witnesses all over again. The entire Christian world gathered to refute it thousands of years ago. Going into Bible college, I was told, you can't be part of where the church is going if you don't know where the church has been. A lot of things have been figured out, and we can learn from them. The scripture is our highest authority, but there's lots of helpful tools and guides that we would be silly to ignore. This brings us to another question, though. Is like, so there is a lot of topics, though, in the Bible that, you know, good, Jesus-loving, even Bible-loving people have some difference of opinion on. How should we handle these? Um, some helpful language that I think a couple categories these can fit into, that which hopefully is helpful as we think about doctrine. The first is that there are some essential teachings. Essential. So, um, 
different people have different lists, but I would definitely land here. The Bible is God's word. That's an essential belief. Our God is a Trinitarian God. Mankind is fallen. Salvation comes by grace alone. Jesus conceived through a virgin birth. Christ is fully God, fully human. That one's under fire today. Jesus was sinless. Jesus atoned for our sins. He didn't just like point us in a direction or give us an example. He took care of it for us. There's lots of essential beliefs, but there's some non-essential ones too. They'll be up on the screen. Let's try that. Okay. End times positions. Some churches, they'll like write down, you have to believe this. We don't have that in our our statement of beliefs because here's what we know. Some Christians are going to change their mind on the way to heaven. They're going to go, actually, I was wrong. So we we can be gracious with this. I have a conviction. You might have a different one. That's okay. Which day we should worship on, how spiritual gifts function, whether Cole can wear a hat when he leads worship up here. These are non-essential things. Actually, the hat one is pretty essential for me. But um, there are things that are sufficiently clear. This is the point. And there's some things that, are, that aren't crystal clear. There's things that Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people have variances of opinion on. And this is where, actually, to go back to an old um, creed or kind of a motto from the church, the Moravian Church, which I would encourage you to go study. They had the greatest missionary movement since the New Testament with a group of like 200 people. Greatest church planning movement. Anyway, their motto was this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So in essential doctrines, we should Park hard. In non-essentials, we should have grace. And in all things, we should have charity, which means love, which is why I named my daughter that. (laughs) We shouldn't throw stones at someone for believing a different non-essential item than us. And there's been some other language recently that I found helpful on this too, is that some things are national line issues and some are state line or provincial line issues. There's some things that put you in an entirely different country than us. There's other things that put you in a different province, but we're still part of the same country and tribe. So uh, there's state line issues, these or national line issues, and failure to believe in them would constitute heresy. We would say you're not part of orthodoxy. And there's lots of even things that call themselves churches in Kelowna, which are outside of these lines. But there's other things that are state lines. There's other churches in Kelowna that love Jesus, believe that in his atoning death, the Bible's God's word, and we're going to differ on some things, but we can all be saved still. The problem is, is that there is national line issues in the church today that are being treated like state lines. And there's state line issues that are being treated like national line issues. People are throwing stones across provincial lines at people for small things and letting other big national line issues just completely go. We need to be charitable. We need to be charitable. In all things, we need to be charitable. But we also need to be defenders of the faith. And and there's a bit of a tendency today sort towards this like permission to kind of just like, well, we don't know, so we won't land anywhere. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture would tell us that what we need to know, we can know. So at Praxis, we have a statement of beliefs. Um, You can go online. We've put it up from the beginning. It got us in some hot water initially. Not hot water. It got us, I got my face on the provincial news because we believe some orthodox teachings of the church that a lot of people don't even talk about because they don't want to come under fire for it. It's important that we take stands. Now, you might go and look at that statement and go, well, I disagree with you on that. I want to let you know that's okay. Praxis can be home, and we can have disagreements on on non-essential issues, and I think that's important because we have an important job, which is being a reflection of Christ to the watching world. But we also have an obligation to be a pillar of truth. And in that, that means that I have an obligation to 
to teach what I believe is true. And I can't just come up here and preach nebulous ideas. So if we're going to have pastors and elders in this church, they are going to line up with our theology. But we want you to know that there's room for, for graciousness and, and many who will hold different opinions on different matters than we do here. And what we need to stop doing is turning everything into an issue to divide the church over. It's striking at God. We are a picture of God to the watching world, and we need to be on guard against this. And so um, we're going to inch towards closing here, but I want to ask you just what your tendency is. Is your tendency towards throwing stones and dividing or failing to stand for anything? Is it toward making every issue something worth dividing over or failing to hold any position at all? Some have been Christians for decades and haven't taken stances on anything because it's for, for whatever reason. And, and it's not good. Neither is good. There's kind of you, you, many will come to faith and we've got this tendency towards landing nowhere. And then eventually you start to learn some theology and you turn into everything is a cage stage match. We've got to battle everything and I've got to win and defeat everything. Neither is good. Both do destruction. One fails to have any distinctives. The other one tries to fight and divide, and it's, it's striking at the image of God. We need to see this. There is danger. There is truth, though, too. And we need to stand on both because our third point is this. There is a purpose that we are to fulfill. So again, um, I've got this, the verse up on the screen, 1 Timothy 3.14. He said, Paul said he's writing this so that we may know how we ought to behave. In the household of God, we are the house of God. And the church is um, a pillar and buttress of truth for the community. We are the holder of truth. God is truth. He's ordained the world rules over it. We are that pillar of truth. It's important that we be that, that we have distinctives. But there's another verse, Ephesians 1. It says this, and we're dropping right into the middle of a run-on sentence that Paul says. So you can, I'll try to set it up. It says, um, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus' head over all things, which is to the church, which is his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It means this, the church is Jesus to the world. We are Jesus to Kelowna. We need to quit the dividing. We need to quit the stone throwing because what it's doing, it's tearing at the image of Christ. It's affecting our witness to the city. And there's things that we need to draw lines over, but we can't draw lines over everything. We need to have graciousness because we're meant to be the fullness of Christ to the watching world. We're meant to live in a way that demands a gospel answer. We're meant to live our life plugged into true faith so that we can truly live out the life he's meant to us to live. And I'll use an analogy to explain this. I've been doing some chainsawing the last couple months. And if you want to run a chainsaw, it doesn't run on, on water. It won't even run on oil. You need gasoline. You need something that will combust in that little two-stroke engine to make the chain turn. The Christian life requires octane as well. It, requ it requires true teaching. You can't just put anything in. We need truth. We need gas. The Christian life requires that our tank be full of the combustible power that only comes from the truths of God's word, the true doctrines of the scripture, the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, how he saved us, what he's coming back to do, and how he's empowered us and gifted us the Holy Spirit in order to be a pre his presence in the world. We are to be Christ in Kelowna. And in order to do that, we don't need to run away from doctrine. We need to run into it, church. We need to be a people who know our Bibles, who study up, a church who holds the orthodox teaching um, that's been passed down to us. 
It's going to require that we take some strong stands on issue, which is good. We need to take bold stands. We live in a culture that is diluting the church. There's too much at stake not to, but we need to be gracious and charitable as well. And so in closing, as the band comes forward, I want, I want to ask you, I want to encourage you, if, you're, if your tendency is towards drawing lines and defending them, I want to encourage you, use this summer to engage with those who don't share your belief. Learn why they disagree with you. Learn why they believe what they believe. Now seek to win them. Reason from the scriptures. Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe they will. Maybe you'll change their mind, but if you don't, you can still win a friend. We need to be motivated by love. If your tendency is towards no stance at all, though, I want to encourage you to read this, to wrestle in and wade into some of the waters that have historically divided churches and denominations. These are not bad things. Because it has in the past does not mean we should not have any opinion on them. I would say you need to. You need to dive into these. Do so with charity, if you, with, with, with grace as you do it. If there's an issue that has been particularly troubling to you, we've got a list of books up on our website, recommended reading kind of from a bunch of old dead authors that can help provide some clarity. And if you have an issue, maybe you don't see a book up there or you're like, which one would be good for this? Reach out, we'd love to help you walk through this. But church, we need to be tethered to the truth. This is the point of what Paul's getting at. Doctrine is not a dirty word. Doctrine is the fuel for the Christian life. And if we're going to be Christ for Kelowna, if we're going to see thousands come to faith, churches planted throughout this valley, this vision that we're possessed with, we're going to need to be a church that does this well.